0: Today's episode is brought to you in part by ExtraHop. Think analytics, folks. ExtraHop is the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. More on ExtraHop later in the show, but if you just can't wait, visit extrahop.com slash to find out more. On heavy networking, Tom Hollingsworth joins us from Gestalt IT. Don't know Tom? I'll describe Tom as a longtime network engineer and CCIE turned scruffy-looking nerd herder who manages many of the community IT events you know as Tech Field Day. I've known Tom for many years and had this opportunity to get his take on many things I've been noticing going on in networking. And in this episode, we are going rapid-fire reaction. That is, I'm going to pitch a statement, which I might or might not agree with, to Tom and let him react. Drew Connery Murray is also with with us for color commentary and to harass Tom even more. So buckle up, everybody. We are going for a ride. Tom, so welcome back uh, once again to uh, Heavy Networking. And you've been on Packet Pushers Network many, many times. Um, But I think we should do a little bit of intro kind of stuff here because you haven't been on for for a little while. And uh, so before we get to these rapid fire questions, would you mind explaining to folks what Tech Field Day is at a high level?
1: Sure. Um Sure. Tech field Day is actually uh, an event that we've put together. The idea is that we want to take companies that are doing fun, exciting, neat things and and put them in a room with, yeah, say around a dozen. Um, independent technical experts, and and we just want to see what happens. We want a little bit of discussion. We want a little bit of presentation. We want to watch a sketchy live demo. No, that's not true. We 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 don't do sketchy demos anymore. Uh, but the idea is is that we want to we want to create that kind of back and forth discussion that you don't get when you're on a webinar. Uh, that you don't get when you're just sitting there watching somebody give you the same marketing deck over and over again we want to dig into topics we want to understand how things work we want to make people defend their decisions kind of
0: now tech field day is made up of uh, of a delegation that's going to go to a particular event Uh, drew and i have both been delegates to tech field day events greg uh, Farrow certainly has been um explain what a delegate is and, and what makes for a good delegate
1: So a delegate basically is someone in the community that stands for the community at an event. Because as much as I'd like to invite 700 of my closest friends to fly out to Silicon Valley, (laughs) um, hotels are not that cheap. But what we can do is we can have people in the room who stand for the other parts of the community. And and back when I introduced the event, I I mentioned independent technical experts. Uh, That's a terminology that we use to describe who the delegates are to people who might want to present. Um, they're all independent. So that means they don't walk into the room with an axe to grind or preconceived notions. Uh, also, they don't work for a company. So unfortunately, if you work for Cisco or Dell or EMC, no matter how awesome you are, your objectivity will even be questioned if we know that you're not unobjective. So that's why we we settle on the independent folks, You know, like packet pushers and, and a lot of our other friends who work either for a reseller or just work for themselves. Um, Then we have the technical aspect of it. So we invite people into the room who kind of understand the technology. And sometimes that causes some issues with people in the community because they're like, well, why can't I come? Like, um, you you haven't shown me that you know anything. Not that I don't believe that you're not smart, but when we start getting into these really crazy EVPN and BGP discussions, I want to know that the people who are around the table can ask good questions. Um, and that goes for all walks of life, whether it's storage or wireless or or um, big data or virtualization.
0: So, so you've got some expectation that people have been uh, blogging or writing something that they've shared with the world to demonstrate that they've got the technical chops to keep up with the conversation.
1: That's exactly right. And that's the third pillar of what uh, really makes a good delegate is a platform. Uh, We get a lot of people who submit their name into the delegate pool who don't have a Twitter account, who don't have a blog, uh, they don't have a podcast. Um, We appreciate their submissions, but part of the problem that we run into at the event is if you don't have a platform to tell people what you've learned, um, that makes it a little difficult for the companies to justify their investment. So one of the things we look at is, you know, are you a writer or a speaker or a podcaster? How often do you publish? What do you talk about? Um, There are some great people out there who have great blogs that don't write a single word of technical content. And so that's part of my job when I'm not on the road doing field day is I'm always looking for new folks to be a part of the event, but I'm also evaluating them. You know, do they write good technical content? are they the kind of person that we want to have around the table engaging in these discussions?
0: Now I keep running into new blogs almost every week. There are people that are blogging, but maybe they just don't happen to be well known or haven't come across uh, the the attention of the world for whatever reason. Um, I so I know there's people out there that are that are writing. They just don't happen to be known to the community. So if people uh, seem to check all the boxes that you just described and they're interested in being a tech field day delegate, how do they come to your attention? How do they apply?
1: Well, the fun fact is we actually have a Google form set up to do just that. So if you go to the website, techfieldday.com, if you look up in the menu bar, there's a thing called delegates. When you click on that link, there's a link, I think it's the third one down that says become a Tech Field Day delegate. And you just have to fill out the form. And the form is real easy. Tell us your name, your email address, uh, give us your blog, your Twitter handle, your LinkedIn. How did you hear about this? Do you know anybody else in the community? Because one of the things we also take into consideration is recommendations from people in the community. We we love to hear the kind of folks that you would like to see around the table. So Ethan, I know that you and Drew and Greg have always given us great recommendations. And anybody else who's listening to this podcast who's been a former or potential field day delegate, don't be afraid to suggest somebody. You, you can even fill the form out for them. There's a button that says, I filled this out for somebody else. And that gives you the, the ability to say, I believe in this person and I think that they would be a good delegate for the event.
0: Well, very cool. Tom, thanks for the overview of Tech Fielding. Now I want to get into rapid-fire questions. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how rapid-fire this is actually going to be because some of these topics are going to take some some talking. But uh, but I want to fire a statement at you, Tom, and then you fire back with your thoughts. What are you, What's your opinion on the statement? And again, disclaimer to those of you listening, I may or may not agree with the statement I'm firing, but it reflects an opinion that's out there by some in the industry that I think is worth discussing. So, Tom, here we go. Number one, certifications – are dying.
1: I don't agree with that at all. And the reason why is because you're always going to have to know how to operate things. And the only way you can tell people that you know how to do that without spending 20 minutes explaining it is to show them a piece of paper saying, I am certified to do the following things. Now, I know that there are a lot of people out there who say, oh, well, they're just a a shortcut to having vendors um, get you trained on their equipment. But remember that in the grander scheme of things, whether you're a ham radio operator or an electrician, there's always a certification process for something. So just because you don't agree with what people are getting certified on right now because you may not like the vendor, um, it doesn't invalidate the process of learning.
2: (sighs) Now I'm trying to decide if I want to comment on this or not. (laughs) If we should just let Tom do all the talking, Drew, what do you think? I kind of want to make a comment if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so I agree. Certifications aren't dying for a couple of reasons. Well, Tom, obviously, yeah, you got it. You, you need to be able to have a quick way to demonstrate what you know. Organizations need a quick way or a shortcut to find people. Um, so that's why you know HR people are going to use that as a filtering mechanism, and that's not going to go away. And third, you see organizations like AWS, which are at the very bleeding edge of new infrastructure operations have a certification program. Why? Uh, because they it's one, it's a great way to get folks trained on their technology. Yes, but two, they know the market needs it. Yeah, so where the statement came from,
0: just, just some background. I've had some chats with some different people on the back channel who've uh, made mention that certification doesn't have the volume that it once did. That is, people that are at vendors working on certification programs are seeing to some degree that the amount of people taking classes and going through tests are beginning to fall off. And we also know that certifications have, for some folks, got a a bad taste in their mouth. Um, The brain dumping that's going on, the dubious merit that some of the certifications bring to the table have put some people off, which doesn't invalidate anything that e- the either of you just said, because those things are also true, but it's definitely become a more complex uh, situation in the certification world, in, uh, you know, in my opinion.
1: So for anybody out there that thinks that uh, certifications don't matter, make me this deal. Leave them off of your next resume that you submit to HR and tell me how far you get in that job interview. <sighs>
0: now you're throwing now you just made it complicated now it's like oh i hadn't thought about it that way because because you can talk a good game but if you actually take them off your resume then that's um that's really really putting your money where your mouth is so to speak actually literally in that circumstance um okay next rapid fire question tom enterprise networking is dying
1: oh man i feel like this is the inverse of the cloud is going to own everything um Yes, cloud is important. Yes, cloud networking is is a wonderful thing. But you are never going to get rid of enterprise networking in the same way that you still need to have streets that access before you can get to a highway or an interstate. And that's because traffic still is local. Now, I will make an argument that maybe the complexity and size of data center networking is going to go away or at least be significantly reduced as those assets move to the cloud. But your PC is not directly connected to the internet. So you're still going to need an enterprise network to get there. Now, I will. the caveat of that is is I think that enterprise networking in five years is going to look radically different insofar as that we're not going to see a lot of uh, direct connections like Ethernet and things like that. A lot of it's just going to be wireless connectivity. And so what you and I would term as traditional campus networking today is going to basically be wireless only.
0: Yeah, the root of this statement, where this came from, was um, uh, particularly the clouderati, basically saying everything's going to cloud and, and your enterprise networks just don't matter. No one cares anymore. That's all dying. But the reality is data center networks may reduce in size, I think, um, but edge computing is still going to matter. Uh, no matter how much moves to cloud. Um, and as you were saying, Tom, the access layer never goes away. If you're sitting in a building, you still got to get to the internet somehow. So I, I agree with you, Tom. I I think there's – it may look different, right, in, in, in five years, as you said, but I, I don't see how it, it's going to actually die no matter what the Clouderati opt- optimistically and perhaps whimsically <laughs> say. <laughs> Next statement, Tom, if you want a career in IT,
1: you better go cloud or just forget about it. Oh, man, it's, you, you were just trying to poke this uh, every every little statement. <laughs> I feel like I just want to reach through the camera and, and smack <laughs> your little cheeks. Now, um, this is kind of the converse of the, of the uh, statement we just made. You know, you've got to have some kind of career that works in cloud or you won't be able to survive. And to that, I say that there are still people making buggy whips. Uh, you may not have the best career in the world. Or think about people who learn COBOL. Uh, Somebody tweeted this out the other day. They're like, man, I should have never stopped being a COBOL programmer. And of course, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, and there was a little bit of giggling. But you know what? You can still make a lot of money as a COBOL programmer because as it turns out, there's still a lot of systems out there, especially insurance companies, that only run on COBOL. But here's the thing, ultimately. If you want to be on the bleeding edge, the cutting edge of technology, then yeah, you're going to have to know some kind of a cloud function, whether it's, and it could be a support function, like, you know, learning SD-WAN or learning AI and ML or something like that, because a lot of that functionality happens in the cloud. But if you want to go to work every day and you just want to, you know, if you want to be a networking lumberjack, just chop down some trees, saw up some wood, then you don't have to know cloud. You know, wireless, you know, um, you know, maybe some, some old school data center stuff. I mean, let's be fair. If you are a 25 year old networking person today and you do nothing but learn how to work on cat 65 hundreds, you will have a career for the next 15 years. Cause those things are not going away. <laughs> <at times. laughs> no,
0: they're not. <laughs> Did you see my tweet on that 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 was from our dinner conversation at the the last event we were at Tom yeah. uh about uh, if, even if Thanos snaps his fingers the 6500s are still going to all be there <laughs> I I, I got so many responses to that. Everyone's like, yes. And then someone brought up 7206 VXRs and how long they live. And it's crazy how long some equipment lasts in the networking world.
1: I have this funny feeling that when we get right down to it, Cat 6500s are really just basically infinity stones. They've always been here. They'll always been here. And no force (laughs) short of cosmic can get rid of them.
2: I would also say to add on to a little bit of what Tom said, he mentioned if you want to be on the bleeding edge cloud is where to go. If you want to be really valuable to your organization, take it on. And take it upon yourself to start understanding cloud and learning cloud because organizations are desperate to, to digitally transform and get into cloud and, and do all the magic, but they don't really know how, they don't know what it's for, they don't know what the benefits are, they don't know what the pitfalls are. So it, to be valuable to your organization, to rise in the organization, if you can become a cloud exporter, very knowledgeable, provide guidance and uh, information that's going to benefit the organization, that's a pretty good career path. It doesn't mean you have to give up entirely on the campus and the data center networking as well, but adding that cloud component can make for a nice career.
0: right, Tom, here's my next rapid-fire question for you. Yang models have gone down the same dark hole as SNMP MIBs.
1: You're not wrong here, but I don't think that that's (laughs) a fault of the model. I think it's the fact that when people get a hold of a new tool, the first thing they want to do is they want to make every old tool look like the new tool. Um, And if you are a home improvement person, you know this. the, The day you buy a jigsaw is the day that you cut up half of the things in your house because that jigsaw is the best tool that you've ever seen until you realize you can't hammer a nail with a jigsaw. So what the problem with Yang models is is that a lot of people are trying to take a lot of the constructs that they've been working on and they're trying to kind of shove them into this framework. And it works for some of them, but it doesn't work for all of them. And that's the problem we ran into with SNMP. Um, I can remember years ago, back back when I was a network engineer, my old job, um, we were doing some really weird stuff with a couple of... uh, platforms that were trying to do some things with MIBs that I didn't necessarily agree with. And that was because I couldn't find that. Like I dug around, and I was like, there's got to be a reference for this MIB somewhere. And it turns out that the company was modifying some of the SNMP stuff to do like some weird device calculation, bandwidth throughput things. And I'm like, you shouldn't do this with SNMP. But because their product was almost exclusively based on using SNMP, they had to get creative with things. Um, so ultimately, I think what's going to happen: Yang <clears throat> models are going to kind of settle out, and, and truthfully, it may take till we get the next model, and then everyone's going to be like, "Oh," and the, like the the laggards and the 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 people who want to be on the bleeding edge, they're just going to rush to the next model. Uh, call it yin or something because that's something we would do is we would like, oh, well, this is better than yang. Um, But what will happen is is the people who are still using yang will look around and suddenly the room is like three-quarters of the way empty. And they're like, all right, now that all the weirdos have left, let's do some real work with this.
0: This has been a frustrating topic for me. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of yang models out there, and the IETF has gone bonkers creating a new Yang model for every draft that's out there. And they've got the Yang doctors that are dedicated to compiling, uh, making sure that the models are fitting the global schema and and, and all of that. Um, but what we had with SNMP was just the the private part of the MIB tree was huge. You just explosion of all of these magical things that the vendors wanted to expose to you about their products uh, under these very obscure SNMP MIB OIDs. And so the problem was just trying to figure out what the heck the OID was that had the bit of information you wanted to pull, and then how to interpret the number because there was no—I mean, there were standard ways to present the in to present information, but no standard way that you would uh, necessarily be shown a particular chunk of information. This might be in hex, and this might need to be. Uh, divided by 60 and so on so you could normalize the date into some sort of a a useful form i think with yang models i'm hopeful that maybe we have less of that less of the private um stuff to begin with if we can all kind of agree on a a larger set of common reference models Uh, but even still i don't see how we're ever going to get away from the vendors. Just They just can't help themselves. It's got to be <laughs> differentiated. And if we all have the same Yang models and the Yang models are exposing all the same functions on our boxes, why would you buy one box over another? All of a sudden, it's buy the cheapest one and you don't have to care about functionality anymore. So I know we're just, again, they can't help themselves. We're going to have some amount of differentiation and Yang models exposing that differentiation. But I'm hoping that the consumption of that is is a more consistent and predictable thing. Now, another point that's been made to me, Tom, I I don't know if you've heard this one, but the idea that that Yang is like SNMP isn't exactly fair in that a network engineer would be expected to parse through an SNMP MIB and and study OIDs and read the OID descriptors and understand what to do with that data. Um, But for Yang models, my understanding is it's really much more about Developers and developers who are trying to pull or pull structured data out or push structured data into the network via that model as a reference. And network engineers maybe don't have to care. So it could be I made up a question that's a really bad one by trying to compare Yang and SNMP, and and we're all doing our uh, chaotic best to tilt at this particular windmill.
2: Hey, look, can I turn this question on its head a little bit? Do anything you want. You're Drew. Sweet. So, all right, how about this as a question then? Uh, In 10 years, will we still be talking about, uh, in 10 years, we may not be talking about Yang models, but I bet we'll still be talking about SNMP.
1: I would agree with that statement um, because I feel like Yang is a transition, uh, a transitory state of where we want to be. It's the best tool we have right now versus SNMP, which is the only tool that really does what it does. (laughs) <laughs> and so we are still going to be stuck with it. We will still be pulling the SNMP MIBs of a cat 6,500 long, long into the
2: 2030s. <laughs> it is an infinity stone. <laughs> 2030s.
0: Any silicon that lasts that long is like, I, I have a cat that's pushing 18 years old. I mean, she's past her cell by, I love the little kitty, but she's past her <laughs> cell by date. That silicon's <laughs> got to expire at some point. Jeez. All right, Tom, next rapid-fire reaction uh, here for you. This is a social media-related question, uh, and it's this. Twitter is pointless
1: now. Oh, man. Um, I can see the validation in this question. Uh, Twitter is hard now. I won't lie to you. And and the reason why is this, because you know, we, we're we all tweeterers of a certain vintage. We we all got on, yeah, what, around 10, 8, 10 years ago. and. Yeah. that was back when Twitter was small enough that it was easy to keep up with conversation. And you, you went through and you knew, you know, you followed people, you had lists, you could get interactive. But the problem is, is that you hit a certain boundary after a while and the noise far outweighs the value. And so then we have to be even more aggressive. I mean, when I first started out, you know, everybody, you know, wants to find people that they want to follow and they really want to engage with. And I've made a lot of good friends through that. But I find now that so many people are using Twitter for, you know, branding exercises or to, you know, do a lot of other things. And, and honestly, as as people have started using it for things like politics and um, other kinds of non-civil arguments, it, it is, is much easier for me to liberally use the mute button to remove noise. And then I kind of feel guilty because I'm limiting the conversation. And, and I think that ultimately that's what it comes down to is it's so hard to find people. Cause you remember back in the day, we we would come up with lists of people, you know, like here are the 18 people you need to follow on Twitter if you want to learn about enterprise networking. Uh, I haven't seen one of those lists in a long time. And I think it's because a lot of the discourse has moved into more controllable areas like Slack channels. Because there, you know, it's very easy to subscribe to channels as opposed to people. So if, you know, mm. like, like uh, I, I'm a good example of this. I don't post college football information on Twitter because the people who follow me on Twitter really don't care. I'll post it on Facebook. So if you're my friend, get ready to hear my opinion on, you know, why I think that, you know, this particular football team is going to win this year because I've chosen to segregate that. But there are a lot of people who don't do that. There are a lot of people that I follow for tech reasons that do nothing but post politi- political content. And so, yeah, sometimes if you're on a rant this week, I'm sorry, buddy, but I'm gonna have to shut you down for a couple of days until I think that this is out of your system.
0: Facebook, that's, that, uh, that's the data mining company,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there, <laughs> imagine if it was like Google, but even more nefarious and less focused on ads. <laughs>
0: We'll be back to this podcast shortly, but we're going to talk about ExtraHop, a Packet Pusher sponsor first. Your job probably includes managing applications, network infrastructure, and so on. But how do you do that when you can't even see everything those apps are running on, when half the network the app is running across isn't even yours? Add to that SDN changing things in automated ways that maybe feel out of your control, or devs and other business units firing up their own cloud instances and then expecting you to support it even though you've got zero instrumentation. These scenarios are some of the ways that ExtraHop can help. ExtraHop is a leader in network analytics, and they help you consolidate tools into their analytics platform and make sense of application performance, running over infrastructure that's sprawled beyond your data center and across the internet and then into the cloud. ExtraHop offers complete visibility and leverages machine learning to help you make sense of the mountain of metadata about your network, and in the end, you can make informed decisions about your IT stack and do it quickly. If you go to ExtraHop.com slash Packet Pushers, you can find out more about the ExtraHop performance platform. Once more, that is ExtraHop.com slash Packet And now, back to the show. I think you made a, an interesting point when you said following people versus following channels. So, like you mentioned Slack. And, right, there's a Packet Pushers audience Slack, for example. And the content in there it's all networking all the time with occasional diversions into other things that and if it if it is other things it almost always ends up in like the random channel or somewhere else because right you segregate those conversations by channel like we did back in the old IRC days if you remember that yeah um when you follow people right and people aren't on topic and they go all over the place and so that that's i've been in i'm in the same boat tom where certain people it's like on tw- I might be connected to them on Twitter. Maybe they're in a in one of the Twitter groups I've created, or maybe I follow them. But then they go off on a political rant, and it's like I follow you because you're, you know, this cloud expert or a networking person, not because you have strong opinions about Donald Trump. So uh, mute, forget it. You're you're in rant mode, and I don't know that. And and I think I, I follow up with this other question for you, Tom. Do you think the tone? Of Twitter has
1: changed. Yes, I absolutely think that the tone of Twitter has changed, uh, but not just Twitter itself. I think the overall the tone of discourse has changed completely. It has gone from what I would consider to be more along the lines of polite disagreement to outright hostile war. Um, and that's on a variety of topics because, yeah, there are a lot of polarizing topics. And and we, you know, being Gen X kids, we're told, you know, you never argue about politics or religion at the dinner table or pretty much anywhere for that matter, because no matter what your opinion on things, someone is going to have a different opinion and they're going to feel very strongly about it. But I feel like that that has been elevated to a level that is uncomfortable. I mean, we, we jokingly say, you know, uh, You know, OSPF versus ISIS is a religious war in networking because they're similar enough that they accomplish the same thing, but there are people who will defend each other's side to, well, their figurative death when it comes to people unfollowing them on Twitter. But that's the problem in a nutshell is that we've forgotten how to talk to other people in a way that both disagrees and respects them at the same time. Uh, I can listen to your argument. I can disagree with your argument, but I don't have to call you a self-important jackhole when you get to the point that I don't agree with.
0: You don't have to, Tom, but you do, and it hurts me deeply.
1: (laughs) I feel (laughs) triggered and offended, and I would like to unsubscribe from this newsletter.
0: All right, let's move to the next question, Tom. Uh, Like the earth is mostly harmless, the IETF is mostly useless.
1: Yes, I I would agree with that. And here's the reason why. One person can make a decision, but it takes a committee to really screw things up. Um, I like the idea in theory that we let everybody have a voice in what's going on and everybody gets to have their fun little discussions and arguments. And that's great. And eventually, we're going to hammer out a solution that works. The problem is, is when you don't do a really good job of governing that group, or making sure that they understand that there's a point to this, and the point is not for you to grab the microphone and make yourself look like a hero, Um, you tend to get lost in the process and not the product. Um, This is a big problem I have because a friend of mine, John Hudson, used to be an IETF track chair for, uh, I believe it was Trill. Um, And it was funny because he would tell me all the dirty little things that were going on behind the group. And he was like, you know, at one point, people just kind of aligned to derail the whole conversation, not because they didn't believe in the protocol, but because they didn't like Radio Perlman. And they decided that she had (laughs) overstepped her bounds by doing this. And we're just going to, you know, we're going to lead a protest and we're going to, we're going to get this thing shut down. And I'm like, you've kind of lost the point of doing this. It's not that you want to be the guy who derailed Trill or the person who decided that I got this whole thing thrown out because of whatever you're now kind of an impediment to progress, and and I feel ultimately when you get a whole bunch of those people that are commu- that are part of the process, they're there because they want to be noticed as opposed to get stuff done. Then your group has become mostly pointless. So it's time to um, you know thank everybody for their service, send them back home, and create you know IETF two or something.
2: I think part of the other problem is, aside from um, you know the, the nature of standards bodies, the way they move slowly, the way they can uh, embody uh, personal grievances, is that the industry, uh, with the adoption of a lot of open source software and software in general, made code sort of the de facto standard in that you didn't have to wait for a blessing from a standards body to move forward. Something you could mock it up, implement it, push it out, and see if it got uptake. And if it did, you kind of won.
1: Yeah. And, and But here's the other thing, the flip side of that, Drew, is when you get people who are involved in the standards process that don't like the idea of let's just make something that works and see who likes it, um, you end up with 802.3 um, AF, which is essentially let's take what Cisco did for power and do the exact opposite thing just to screw Cisco.
2: <laughs> right. Like I said, there's that human aspect of it.
0: IETF is very public about their, um, you know, as a, as a core value they have is is the democratization of ideas. If there are competing ideas, they will support all of them. In other words, they're not going to pick sides and say just because these four encapsulation types are more or less the same, we aren't going to, you know, pick one and have that as the standard. We can have multiple standards, and you know, and so on. And so I, I mean, I agree with what the the point both of you have made here, which is roughly. Governance is the problem. It's not that we don't need standards because we do. It's that the way the standards development organization in, in the case of the IETF is being governed these days, it's gotten really bogged down in, in politics and you know, personal interests and egos and uh, complicates what we as consumers end up with for standards to choose from.
1: Yeah, I think ultimately what you need to do is the next time that you think that the ITF's method of governance is effective, go home tonight and let your kids vote on what they (laughs) want to have for dinner. And then try not to impose your parental prerogative to say, we cannot have cake for dinner. (laughs) Right.
2: Every every voice gets equally heard in that one. And that's tough. Yes. And Ethan, just props for the hitchhiker's reference in that question.
0: Oh, thank you very much. All right, Tom, next rapid-fire reaction question. BGP is the kitchen sink of routing protocols, and that's bad.
1: No, that's good. You wrote a routing protocol that's extensible. Congratulations, because you didn't get bogged down in the details. You built something that can be scalable. That's like saying a screwdriver is a bad tool because you can use it as a chisel. No, it's not. You're a bad person if all you use screwdrivers for is chisels. Um, that's that comes from the idea of people that are just getting fed up with people using BGP as a control protocol for other things. I apply, everything. yeah, but but hey, if the shoe fits, wear it because you know what the other opportunity the other option is, let's just rewrite a new routing protocol every time we need to do something a little bit different. And then you know the CCI lab exam is going to be filled with 45 routing protocols instead of three. Uh, I, I Instead of 45 <laughs> extensions to BGP, you have to enable? <laughs> yeah, well, hey, you know what? I'd, I'd rather have to hit the question mark key on BGP to be like, all right, now wait, which which family, address family am I using this time? Crap, I forgot. At least I'm in the right area. I can look that up in documentation. Um, this this is a problem for people that believe that everything needs a specific tool. Um, uh, if you're a fan of, of cooking TV shows, uh, Alton Brown, who did Good Eats, um, has this wonderful thing that he, he rails on called unitaskers. Um, he does not believe that a kitchen needs a tool for every little purpose. So like an egg slicer um, is the most useless tool ever. Just because you figured out you can slice strawberries with it doesn't make it a useful tool. Um, Whereas, you know, little other great things that have multiple purposes that can serve multiple functions because people will call him out on it when he's like, you know, I I got this thing and I'm I'm gonna use it. Like, oh, that looks like a unitasking tool. He goes, actually, no, it serves like 18 different purposes. To me, that's the essence of what we should be building. If we can get to a world where there's two routing protocols, the the outside one and the inside one, I'll be a happy person. Now, they may be extensible as all get out, but that's because we need them to serve our purpose, not their purpose.
0: Mm. Mm. I'm trying to say what I think about this because this is actually a huge topic. When you look at what BGP was designed to do and then what some of the things that we're asking it to do, particularly when it functions as an interior gateway protocol – and it's like, was that really what BGP was for? I mean, it's it's it obviously had huge global success as the core backbone routing protocol of the internet, and so it's got its role to fill. But then all these other things we've asked it to do, it seems like other protocols with different fundamental design principles might be better at that job. So, uh, you know, I don't know. BGP seems to be what we have, and so we keep throwing things into it, kind of like we're not exactly parallel but we're kind of stuck with ethernet because it's what everybody knows and what everybody's you know, designs around um even though it's really been extended to go way beyond what it was ever intended to do when it was originally conceived back in the day it feels like maybe there's some other answers out there than uh than BG just throwing another extension at bgp on the other hand tom the whole unitasker thing—I get it. I do get what you're saying. That is fair. Um, I was talking to Russ White in the back channel a bit about some of the data center fabric proposals that are working their way through the IETF. There's Open Fabric, there's Rift, and there's another one, and those are unitaskers. They're very specific for data center fabrics, which is a problem most people don't actually have. So, do these protocols need to exist? Um, you know, on the other hand, we run BGP in the data center. And I've heard people go, yeah, you can do it. And it's actually kind of a stupid idea. You really don't want to do this most of the time. Um, there's, It's very rare where this is a good fit. I'd rather see you use you know, something else, OSPF, ISIS. There's other, well, one of these new data center fabrics, perhaps, that come up in the conversation as probably better fits than BGP in the data center for the most part. So it's, it's a complicated conversation, I think. All right, Tom, next rapid-fire reaction question. Products based on silicon photonics will
1: never come to market. Somewhere I think there's a Wall Street guy out here who's currently making a phone call based on what we're about to say. Um, <laughs> I disagree with this, and the reason why is a couple of years ago, um, Andy Bechtelsheim gave a great uh, talk at Networking Field Day about, uh, I believe he was talking about 400-gig interfaces and he basically said we're basically we're reaching the limit of what we can do with um non-silicon photonics so traditional photonics because of heat um we cannot dissipate heat off of an optic fast enough to make it go any faster and i think ultimately well we'll look at what we've done with moore's law recently you know when we were noobling networkers um moore's law was the way and the light and the solution to all of our problems because we could just count on every 18 months processors getting twice as fast, right? And now even Intel is coming out and saying, yeah, Moore's law is never gonna stand up because we cannot make them any faster. And part of the reason why is heat because it turns out the laws of physics can be bent and they can be severely bent for an expensive amount of money, but they cannot be broken. So these units are still gonna generate heat they're still going to be inefficient past a certain scale. And the only way to move past that is to move into a new field like silicon photonics because it changes the game enough that we can continue our you know, rapid upward march of faster, faster speeds without compromising what we would consider to be, you know, like we wouldn't want to have to put a 78-pound a copper heat sink on top of a, an optic just to make it go at terabit speeds. I mean we might because that would be fun to put that in the rack did did you invest in a copper company and i didn't know about (laughs) (laughs) this
0: so so tom the the statement was actually uh, false as presented you know the way i wrote it was i said products based on silicon photonics will never come to market so there's a little more to the story um you know one is it seems like we've been talking about silicon photonics forever and how they're going to enable uh, everything that you you were just talking about, um, you know, faster speeds, dealing with heat, um, helping us deal with the laws of physics that we're running up against as we try to push faster, faster, faster uh, Ethernet speeds through through switches um but in fact there are some silicon photonics products that are that are out there maybe not in the way that we were you know thinking of but there is some silicon photonics that has been productized according to Cisco anyway we just did recorded a show with them this past week uh talking about 400g mm-hmm. uh, i don't as of the re- this recording that show has not been published yet but that'll be coming out soon um and they mentioned in there hey silicon photonics products are out there and, and Cisco of course has invested in a number of silicon photonics companies and or bought them outright um, so it's not I it, it's not actually fair, the statement that I made., um, you know, uh, and the flip side of that is, yeah, silicon photonics is advancing, and it does appear to be that, although we keep talking about it, we are gonna see mainstream silicon photonics come to market at some point because we have to. it's it's the answer that's gonna move us along to um, faster and faster speeds uh or else we're going to be stuck with 50 and 100 gig lanes forever just trying to get to those faster speeds which is kind of a non-starter that doesn't scale at some point you know you you got to you got to be able to push more data down a a single line of fiber and then into uh, into that switch if you just begin to scale this out 5 10 and 20 years down the road okay tom next rapid fire reaction question vendor locking is the future because open source eh, is too hard
1: Vendor locking is the future when you don't want to think for yourself. And yes, I just pissed a lot of you off. And uh you I was like, wow, you just threw down with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's <laughs> see where this goes. If you have any complaints, please make sure to text them to at EC Banks on Twitter.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Ultimately explain is- yourself, sir. Yeah, explain yourself. Explain His DMs myself. are open.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um The problem ultimately is open source is hard. I'm not going to get that wrong. You know, anybody who's ever worked on an open source project will agree. Because as it turns out, it's not the licensing model that's hard. It's the fact that you actually have to build the software yourself. And there are a lot of people out there that would prefer not to do that. And and an analogy that I use is my lawn, which I'm currently looking out of my office window at and realizing it's dying. Um, I mow my lawn. And people are like, well, I mow my lawn, too. I'm like, yeah, but how many people do you know that don't? And they looked at the cost-benefit analysis of how busy am I? How much is my time worth? And it is way cheaper for me to hire some neighborhood kid to come mow my lawn and let me move on with my day. But in the back of my mind, uh, my dad always told me, never pay anybody to do something you can do yourself. And to me, that should be like the standard of open source. Um, you build a thing, and then you give it to the community. And you're like, hey, guys, gals, please um, please come help me make this thing better. And there are a ton of great open source projects out there. And I am a huge supporter of people that are wanting to do open source. But I also don't turn around and crap all over people who are like, uh, that's hard, and I don't know how to program. I'm gonna go buy from a vendor. And anytime you buy from a vendor, you are risking vendor lock-in. And that's even if you're using nothing but standards-based protocols. And that's because every vendor is going to tweak a standard just a little bit to give you 5% faster performance or something like that, because that's how you differentiate and that's how you get business. So ultimately, I think open source will continue to grow. I think that open source is a huge boon for the vendor market because they can take elements of open source and use it to build new products. Um, but I don't think that people are going to run screaming into the night because it's hard. In fact, I think people will run screaming right toward open source because they like building and making things.
2: I think vendor lock-in is one of those things that people like to complain about, but when you look at their behavior, they're willing to go along with it for X number of reasons. They've got a lot of training and staff invested on this platform and so it would be too costly to switch over to something else they need to get it done now they don't have time to skill up on something else they're just comfortable with the way the vendor works they like having the the support that, that they get from the organization or maybe not like it but at least they know they have it um so all this talk about vendor lock and when you look at how people actually behave it's not really an issue
1: if you don't think that people are talking out of both sides of their mouth with vendor lock-in, look at the number <laughs> of people who complain about it and then buy a BMW, which can only be serviced at a BMW dealership because <laughs> they have to reset the triggers inside of it. Um, that to me is the ultimate form of vendor lock-in. Um, you you know, don't, don't tell me that this is a problem and then go around and do it somewhere else with a different product line. Basically.
2: I'm thinking the same thing with VMware on AWS. I'm moving into AWS, but I'm essentially migrating VMware there and giving VMware the money. <laughs> to One run of these there. days, I'm
1: going to figure out what the business model there is, and then I will be able to make millions.
2: That's right.
0: Uh, I I've used to feel like, oh vendor lock in, that's bad. You know, you want you want all your options. But the more I think about it, um, as I've been pondering this a lot over the last year really, a variety of blog posts have come up about it and just got my wheels going. I don't think vendor lock-in is necessarily a bad thing. Depending on, you know, what sort of a business you're in or what you're trying to get done, vendor lock-in could be fine. Okay, you're committed and it does Maybe give you a little less bargaining power, but you do still have the opportunity in a lot of cases to do something greenfield and and do a wholesale replacement. It wouldn't be elegant, but you could still get it done. You know, the flip side of that is there are, with some vendors uh, like Cisco, um, the chance for a tighter integration. Um, Potentially, potentially. I don't, Cisco hasn't been done overly well with this in many cases, but in some cases they have, where the 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 system works better because you're buying things from several different BUs and there is some kind of glue that holds it together and maybe that is advantageous to your business to go that direction. Um and yeah, as we've said here, open source is hard. You think you want to just – you want to have the ultimate flexibility and build your own custom system on top of open source? Well, good for you. I hope you've hired the right people and a lot of them to get that job done for you and then keep and maintain that system that you've built because open source is not a uh, a turnkey solution. It is the opposite of that. It is it is a great starting point but does not um, uh, solve any problems for you immediately in many cases. So I don't, yeah, I don't think vendor locking is as bad as 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 that is. And, and Drew, as you were saying, if you look at the behavior of people, yeah, you can talk it down, but what do people actually do? Well, they vote with their dollars, and a lot of times they're they're buying from whoever the vendor is, and getting all locked in.
2: So I, if I can push back a little bit on that notion of um, it's all from one vendor, so it works better together, I think that's becoming. More and more rare as more and more vendors uh, build out their portfolio through acquisition. So if they're telling you that story, ask them what the code base is uh, before you buy into that <laughs> that line I, about I better say, through integration.
1: It, it reminds me of the fact that I know some people who uh, refuse to unpack their boxes after they move into a house because their first response is, well, we're just going to get a, a new house in a couple of years. And so we don't really feel like we need to unpack because we don't want to get locked into this one. Um, <laughs> like, like literally... Like, they, they've been in the house for 10 years. I'm like, I think you're going to be here a little while longer. You can unpack. No, 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 no. If we unpack, then then we'll get attached to it.
2: Like, yeah, it's okay. Put up some photos. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, and one more thing. If you think that going to the cloud is uh, getting you out of vendor lock-in, you may want to rethink that as well.
1: <laughs> Jeff Bezos would like to have a word with you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: From the inside of your wallet.
2: (laughs) 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 Or from on top of his $10 billion rocket that he's building to go live on Mars. (laughs) Tom, I have one more rapid-fire reaction question um,
0: to you. And I've been calling these questions. They've all been statements. So anyway, anyone that's been been bugging your OCD (laughs) because I've been saying question and then not asking a question, sorry. They're statements. I get it. Here we go, Tom. If I wasn't in tech, I'd be doing X instead. What would X be for you?
1: I'd be a teacher. Um, I, I actually, I've thought long and hard about this, uh, over the last few months. Um, and I realized that ultimately my, my personality type is to educate people about things. Uh, this week after I got back from the event where I saw the both of you, um, I stepped off an airplane, grabbed a snack. And then I went and spent three and a half hours teaching, um, scouts how to do public speaking, uh, it's something I'm good at. And it's something that I feel like I can pass information along to. And it gives you a good feeling to educate people, to to see them grow and change and and go from being unable to give a two-minute speech at the beginning of class to being able to give a 10-minute speech by the end of the class because they found the confidence and the ability in themselves to do something that they couldn't do before. And that's the kind of fulfilling thing that makes you want to get up the next morning. Yeah, you know what? schools are just like any other place. You're going to have to deal with stuff you don't want to deal with. There are going to be days when people just aren't working with you. But it's ultimately a fulfilling goal in the long run to know that you've had an impact on people in the long term because you've given them a skill they didn't already have. Tom
0: Hollingsworth, thanks again for joining us on Heavy Networking. And how can people follow you?
1: Man, I am, I'm everywhere. I feel like that I've basically done like the Hydra thing all across social media. So if you want to follow me, um, I'm on Twitter as at NetworkingNerd. And as Drew said, my DMs are open. So if you want to send me comments about this, remember it's at uh, ECBanks is my DM handle. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> <laughs> um, my blog is NetworkingNerd.net. Uh, but you can also find a lot of the stuff that I do over at uh, our, our media site, That's G E S T A LTIT.com because the best websites are in German. Um, we do a lot of uh, where I get a lot of the brief things on, uh, on new technologies and things that are coming out. Networkingnerd.net is, is a lot more kind of thought leadership and, um, you know, reflections and musing on the networking industry getting beat up for your opinions about 10x engineers, you know that kind of thing. Oh yeah, well, you know, every uh, I am settling in. I'm am currently at a 9x engineer and the next time I get a post I'm probably going to go down to like 6 or 7. I'm I'm totally unproductive <laughs> when I have to answer Hacker News comments all day. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, my thanks to you, Tom, for being our guest today, sharing your insights. And uh, those of you listening, remember that Tech Field Day has, uh, there's hundreds of hardcore technical videos you can find on their YouTube channel. So if you want to deep dive on products from all kinds of vendors across the IT industry, not just networking, but storage and security and cloud and wireless and so on, uh, again, Go go find the Tech Field Day channel on YouTube. Uh, visit techfieldday.com. You can find more information there. I'm Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. Drew is Drew Conry Murray, Drew underscore CM on Twitter. And for more of the unab- uh, glorious, unabashed nerdery that is the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, visit packetpushers.net. Press all the buttons on our subscribe page and then sign up for our newsletter. We'd appreciate all those things. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.